Welcome to another episode of The Watchdog here on Mint Press with me, Loki. I hope that you can see we are striving to go against the grain in our coverage, looking at stories that the mainstream media regularly neglect. For that reason, it is vital we have your support. So I would ask you to subscribe, to um, like, to drop comments on this video, but also contribute to the Patreon if you can. Now, today we are sitting on the beginning of a phase where China is becoming more and more the target for major, unfortunately, military action. And that can be seen in the recent announcement of the US, UK, Australia coalition and the arming of Australia with nuclear submarines, nuclear-powered submarines, though, to be precise, in a deal which is likely to favour Rolls-Royce and BAE Systems. BAE Systems have come out with an announcement today. As a company with a significant presence in all three markets, we stand ready to support the AUK-US discussions as they progress. It is important to note that Australia, despite being put in this position where it is likely to be used against China, its number one trading partner is China. And while the UK, up until the withdrawal from Afghanistan, had military based in five countries around China. Today, it seems to be four. It has a naval base in Singapore, has garrisons in Brunei, drone testing sites in Australia, and three military facilities in Nepal. Also, the United States is believed to have 300 to 400 bases around China. When talking about China, you are talking about one-fifth of the world's population. It's 1.4 billion people. Historically, there are at least four to five periods of human history in which China has had the most advanced polity in the world. And as Samuel Huntington, of all people, said, the West won the world by its superiority in applying organized violence. What did that mean? It meant that from 1750 to 1900, the UK share of world manufacturing went from 2% to 23%. The US share went, point, went from 0.1% to 24%, whereas China's share of manufacturing went from 33% to 6%. India's went from 25% to 2%. As they say, with the British, the trade followed the flag. And that is what happens when you occupy 14 million miles of the globe. In 1997, when Tony Blair was handing back Hong Kong to the Chinese, he said he only had a dim idea of what the history between Britain and China was. Well, the first opium war um, from 1830 to, um, to the 1840s, it was how Britain got hold of Hong Kong in the first place. And it was the imposition on the Chinese of Britain's trade in opium. It was forcing the Chinese to legislate that opium could be sold and consumed within China. The foreign minister at the time, Lord Palmerston, said this will form an epoch of in the an epoch in the progress of civilization 
of the human race. Also in the 1850s, Britain fought in the Taiping Rebellion. And pre-World War I, the Taiping Rebellion was the most costly war in recorded human history in terms of human uh, suffering. Britain managed to fight on both sides of the Taiping Rebellion. And the, the rebels that they were fighting against at one point, again, wanted to legislate against opium trade. So what happened was you had 20 million people die in the Taiping Rebellion with the British contributing to that death toll massively. You had three opium wars in which the British forced the Chinese to accept that millions of their citizens would be drugged by British opium. Today, where are we? China is projected by people like Goldman Sachs to become the world's number one economy by 2026. Britain is projected to fall from the fifth largest economy to the 11th largest economy over the next decade or so. China is not isolated in any way, shape or form. It is the largest trading partner with Brazil, the largest trading partner with India, the largest trading partner with China. And whether it's through the Shanghai Five or in the EU, the 16 plus one uh, cooperation that China has with Central European states, or it is the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby the Chinese government has set forth that it will invest in 70 different countries and international organizations. Or it's looking at the way that Brexit has affected Britain. Britain has come out of it replacing Germany as its biggest source of goods and supplies with China. You have um, Chinese students in the UK that pay £1.7 billion per year in tuition. You have US debt of $1.1 trillion held by the Chinese. And every day, the US sells $2 billion of debt to the Chinese. It would be wise to warn the United States, who seem more isolated than ever, actually, that China is far from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they should be very, very careful about their next steps. In Britain, we have seen Michael Gove appointed as the housing minister. Michael Gove is somebody that has a history as a co-founder of the Neocon Henry Jackson Society, which pushed relentlessly for the PREVENT program, uh, a surveillance operation in public institutions targeting specifically Muslims and often opening the space for children who are deemed to be Muslim by the state to be questioned by police without the presence or foreknowledge of their parents or carers. The Henry Jackson Society has shared funders with the Friends of the IDF, illegal settlements in the West Bank, and Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins. Also, you have seen the political council of the Henry Jackson Society act as an incubator for other figures in the British political system, like Priti Patel and Amber Rudd. Of course, Amber Rudd is well known for being the deporter of the Windrush generation, and Priti Patel has been well known for passing legislation recently, which will allow 
the British maritime forces to push boats back. Remember, she had a job with Viasat, the company that do the satellite systems for Royal Navy ships. And she, as has Katie Hopkins, have been advocates for the using of Royal Navy ships in the pushing back of, quote unquote, migrant boats. But more relevant to Michael Gove's appointment as housing minister, you have the documents which show less than a month ago or around a month ago, he was given £100,000 by the property developer, Zach Gertler. Now, Zach Gertler is a close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu, funded his election campaign. He was the managing director of the U.S. State Department funded policy forum and is a patron of the illegal settlement building Jewish National Fund in Palestine. So it's quite clear to see that we have our work cut out for us with Michael Gove, especially if we expect him to advocate and help and pass legislation that will seriously deal with the situation we have here where communities like the one I live in, we saw cladding that was placed on the building by a massive US construction company, Arconic, lead to the deaths of 72 people. And across the country today, we see hospitals, hotels, schools, and homes covered in dangerous flammable material, still yet to be removed. And in many cases, the inhabitants of those buildings being forced to pay to get those removed and unable to sell the leases for their properties. It is very unlikely they will find a listening ear in Michael Gove. We also see Liz Truss uh, um, put forward as the secretary, the foreign secretary. Liz Truss, of course, was courted by the neocon think tank, the American Enterprise Institute, which is funded by ExxonMobil, Shell, and the Koch brothers. As a trade minister, she forced weapon sales to Saudi Arabia to continue, well, to restart, essentially, even after 15 billion pounds worth of BAE systems arms had helped drive Yemen to the point of famine in the largest humanitarian crisis in the world today. What can we expect from Liz Trust as Secretary of Foreign Affairs, apart from more servility to the status quo? We are also seeing uh, more media attention focusing on Shamima Begum. Of course, this was a 15-year-old child who entered Syria at the time of massive mobilization of military hardware towards the region to face off ISIS. At that time when Shamima Begum took her trip, it was reported by Reuters that this trip was facilitated by an intelligence agent from the US-led coalition. However, when dealing with Shamima Begum, who now is languishing in one of the camps of northern Syria, today you have the way in which she is dealt with is not as a person who has lost three children to the conditions, but also she is not dealt with as somebody who potentially could have been trafficked by an intelligence agent from the US-led coalition. And in fact, what you see is a greater accountability targeted towards a child than you see for intelligence agencies 
involved in that campaign. Now, the next speaker, the next guest that we have today may have some interesting insights to give us on many of these issues. He is a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy since 2010. In 2009, he had resigned from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department for a few different reasons, and we are going to go into them today. He had previously been part of the U.S. occupation of Iraq, And he has uh, won prizes from the Reidenhauer um, Prize for Truth-Telling. He is somebody who is involved in the campaign to free Julian Assange. He is an advisory board member for the Committee to Defend Julian Assange and Civil Liberties. We are joined today by former State Department employee Matthew Ho. How are you, Matthew? Hi, Kareem. Thank you so much for having me with you. It's great to be joined by you. So to start with, your work as a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, it has a program called the Arms and Security Project. And I was quite taken by a quote from the program director, William D. Hartung. He said, the use of military force is largely irrelevant in addressing the greatest, the greatest dangers we face, from terrorism to nuclear pr- proliferation, to epidemics of disease, to climate change, to iniquities of wealth and income. The allocation of budgetary resources needs to be changed to reflect this reality. Now, when we look at the United States, it has a military expenditure larger than the next seven militaries put together. Of course, we know that the US military as an institution is the largest emitter of, uh, you know, it's, it's the largest source of carbon emissions. In comparison to 99% of think tanks based in Washington, D.C., who essentially seem to be seeking an, a, a greater allocation of funds towards the uh, military juggernaut which sits on top of the United States. What's different about the Center for International Policy? Well, thanks for for asking me about uh, CIP. CIP has been around since uh, the late 1970s, and it was started by um, a a few people who had uh, witnessed personally uh, what the U.S. had done uh, throughout Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, uh, parts of Thailand, Um, and saw what the United States was continuing to do in Central America. And um, that that is basically the genesis of CIP, uh, people coming together to form uh, an organization that would speak out and um, lobby uh, to prevent the American uh, government from um, repeating what it had done in Southeast Asia, from continuing what it was doing in Central America, from, 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 you know, and just basically to... Uh, be at least some form of organized uh, uh, voices against uh, the the crimes of the empire, uh, basically, to put it. And throughout time, CIP has been a home for uh, men and women who have dissented against the U.S. government. There have been plenty of, of people who have been a part of CIP, uh, men like, say, Bob White, um, who uh, have been... Um, 
U.S. ambassador in Central America who have resigned in protest over the President Reagan's policies in Central America, which included, of course, you know, support to uh, uh, despotic and human rights violating regimes or support for death squads, support for the Contras, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So th that, that's the legacy of CIP. CIP does not take, um, with, with a couple of, of exceptions for a couple of, uh, for a couple of environmental programs, including a deforestation program, CIP does not take uh, money from uh, corporations. Uh, so it's all, all done through foundations and individuals, which is also makes it different than most of the other think tanks in Washington. Um, and we're also a home to many people who get censored. Uh, Bill Hartung, who you just uh, uh, quoted, Bill is uh, one of the uh, uh, best experts uh, on the American uh, military budget, on the war budgets, on the, the uh, and not just on the budgets, but on everything that falls around that. So all the defense and companies and such. Uh, you know, Bill came to us about 10 years or so ago because he was at another think tank where he was censored where what he was writing, the think tank did not want him to publish because it would upset their, uh, they, it would upset their funders, their donors, their, the corporations that give them money. So, I mean, that's very, a very real thing. Anyone who thinks that somehow these organizations in DC that are receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars are somehow not responsive to their donors and don't actively pursue the donor's interests, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know what to tell you, but that's just the way the world works, you know. So, uh, you know, CIP, I, I've been a part of CIP for 10 years. It's been a great home for me. Um, and I appreciate you, uh, you you giving me an opportunity to give a little pitch about them. No, I think absolutely. And I think an increased uh, criticality when dealing with talking heads, which are put forward by the media, is vital if we're going to understand, you know, this concept of agnotology. So the um, carefully constructed ignorance within society. If we look at, so for example, in Britain, you have RUSI, Royal United Services Institute, which is funded by BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, and Shell. You look at, and regularly, for instance, Tony Blair spoke at them recently, and it's not reported in any of the coverage that his speech received the source of funding for this very think tank. You know, you look at the Brookings uh, Institution, for example, in the US. This is another one which has funding from various different places, various different agencies. And essentially, this is a way in which you can what they do, what they call astroturf, the agency of the powerful, and kind of give uh, a benign appearance to what are quite serious the damaging ideas for democracy within any country. Now, when you worked in Afghanistan and you resigned in 2009, what was exactly the last straw? Because when we look at misallocation of funds, when we look at empowering warlords, when we look at empowering um, those involved in the drug trade, Afghanistan wasn't the first place in which the US government had done that. So what was the final straw? Well, for me, it was just a culmination. Um, I had uh, gone to Afghanistan and uh, I was already intellectually and morally broken from taking part in the Iraq war. I'd been to the Iraq war twice and I had supported the Iraq war through my work in Washington DC for years. 
And by the time I got to Afghanistan, I was just, uh, again, morally and intellectually broken and holding on to the hope that uh, somehow the Afghan war was going to be different, um, that somehow the Afghan war was going to be um, uh, uh, you know, a, a fu fundamentally uh, a war that was worth fighting, uh, you know, and I was grasping at that point, right, really trying just to hold on to something um, because I didn't want to let go of, of who I had become, of the career I was in. I was dealing with a lot of uh, mental, emotional, spiritual issues. And, you know, there's a duality inside all of us. And, and, and you know, put it kind of bluntly, I had one side of me that was uh, invested in my career and, and being part of something bigger than me, of, you know, being an officer of the empire. Uh, and that was not who the, the, the just, uh, you know, moral side was. And so there had been this conflict in me. And then when I got, so when I got to Afghanistan, um, and one of the ways that I had dealt with that internal conflict was by, um, was through, you know, heavily drinking. And when I got to Afghanistan, I wasn't able to drink. Um, you know, I mean, I was, uh, you know, if I was at the embassy, I could drink. But other than that, when, when I was doing my job out in the provinces, I, you couldn't. And so that allowed, you know, I've been using the alcohol basically to kind of subjugate and beat down that part of myself that was intellectually and morally honest. And so kind of like a, a, a you know, wildflowers, it sprung up. Uh, and so there just, it, you know, but the main thing was, um, was the fact that the war was no fun, was not fundamentally different than the war in Iraq. It was exactly the same thing. And I knew that, you know, I mean, it's just allowing myself to admit that, you know, allowing myself to admit that I was taking part in the same continuous line of American history that stretches back centuries, that the occupation of Afghanistan is just, uh, you know, and the occupation of Iraq and the wars in Syria, Libya, Yemen, et cetera, are all just uh, the latest in a long line of uh, wars of empire, of imperial uh, efforts, uh, you know, straight, you know, stretches back to the genocide of the Native Americans. Uh, but admitting that to myself was very difficult. And it had to take, I guess, at that point, seeing that uh, the war in Afghanistan was no fundamentally different than the war in Iraq, uh, that, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, what I was witnessing there, the, 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 the blood and the suffering, um, you know, was serving no purpose other than uh, enriching, uh, you know, the United States. And in particular, because uh, Afghanistan is a bit different than Iraq in some ways, and one of them is a the sense that they're there was not much extraction from Afghanistan like you have from Iraq in terms of looting, like an empire looting a place. And we can get into that, how that was different. But again, fundamentally, there's no difference. So, and so seeing the, suffer, the suffering, the, 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 the killing, the blood, uh, you know, seeing the corruption, seeing just, the, you know, having to, to just go along with the lies. Um, I don't know if there was one thing that really kind of pushed me over. Uh, as much as it was just all the culmination of all that. I, I guess if it was, it would have been uh, the elections in the summer of 09, the, the presidential elections in Afghanistan, August 09, witnessing just the, um, you know, absolute theft of that election. I mean, I was on an Afghan army base and, you know, I saw Afghan soldiers stuffing ballot boxes. There was not supposed to be a polling station there. They certainly weren't supposed to be stuffing ballot boxes. Uh, and, you know, and at that, that point in summer of 09, um, the president of the United States had been saying we are rushing, you know, thousands of American soldiers to Afghanistan, which which they were. Um, 
to ensure that the Afghans have free and fair elections. And of course, that was completely untrue in seeing um, you know, these young men and women being sent there to kill and to be killed, to see Afghans being killed over this, you know, this lie uh, about, and, right? Yeah, so. And that was the election that I think Abdullah, Abdullah was supposed to have won, but Karzai was then enforced, imposed still by the U.S. government. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, it was one of uh, one of several. Each of the elections that were held in Afghanistan have been massively fraudulent. Uh, and they actually got worse each one, I guess, in terms of the brazenness. Um, the but in this case, yeah, Karzai, uh, Karzai, I think, claimed he had 54 percent of the, the ballot. I don't think there was any actual real ballot that was conducted. Uh, and Abdul Abdullah threatened to break away from uh, pull his support from the government, which would have collapsed. And as you saw, everyone saw how quickly the Afghan government collapsed in these last few months. The same thing would have happened in 2009. I mean, this has always been a house of cards, right? So any little thing is going to cause it to collapse. Um, so you, that's exactly what happened. You had um, the United States uh, basically bang heads together within the Afghan government, within the, the, the community that supported the Afghan government, uh, put Karzai, keep Karzai in power. And, you know, I mean, so the whole uh, the whole depravity of it, right? The whole mendacity of it, this idea that we're somehow spreading democracy. And then we uh, watch uh, an election get stolen and we send 30,000 more U.S. troops to Afghanistan after the election was stolen. We, we sent about, you know, when President Obama comes into office in 2000, uh, you know, January 2010, there are about 30,000 American troops in Afghanistan and about 30,000 NATO troops and, and, and about a and contractors, you know, within a year and a half, there's 100,000 U.S. troops, 40,000 NATO troops, and, you know, more than 100,000 contractors. So after Karzai uh, steals these elections, uh, he is rewarded with the presence of a quarter million man Western army to keep him in power. Uh, mm. I mean, that was the reality of it. And really, in a way, in order to buttress this corrupt government, this status quo that we could say a majority of Afghans were against, definitely. Um, you talk about having to divvy up money in order to sort of buy hearts and minds, or at least on the surface of it, by cooperation. Um, and the exact quote I have from the great piece by Alan McLeod in the Mint Press article that comes from you, it says, holy cow, I was living like Scarface. I was pay paying out anywhere between $300,000 to $400,000 per week to $5 million per week at times, all in cash. I had $50 million in cash. The most I ever had at one point was $24 million on hand in $100 bills, sitting in safes in my bedroom. And then when you talk about work in Iraq, you say, once we signed that money out of the vault in Baghdad, it was up to me how to document how that money was spent and where it went. I had no requirement. Literally, I am not joking. No guidance and no requirement to provide documentation about where that money went. Yeah, that, that was the situation in Iraq and Afghanistan was not much different in terms of the way the money was spent. Um, there had been 
some controls put on the money, um, you know, uh, it, by 2009, 2010 in Afghanistan because of, of some um, uh, scandals, basically, because the newspapers got a hold of it. Uh, I mean, because people were stealing the money left and right. I mean, there wasn't just the, the there was the two aspects of it. There was the, the illicit corruption and the illicit corruption. The illicit corruption was the U.S. Congress appropriating uh, um, billions of dollars to rebuild these countries and 40% of that money just being taken right by American contractors for overhead and management costs. So in the case of Iraq, say Iraq when the U.S. government appropriates $16 billion for what's called the Iraq Reconstruction and Relief Fund, 40% of that money never even leaves the United States. It just goes right into the, right into the corporations. Um, and then, I don't know, anywhere from 25 to 40% of the rest of that money is then um, so, you know kept by subcontractors. So by the time you get to the actual project where you're going to build a school or a healthcare center or a road or whatever you're supposed to do, there's only about 10 cents left on the dollar for the actual project. And that's the illicit corruption that goes on. Right? I mean, because it's just it's just one Western corporation after another. And then of course the partners of the United States and the West in these countries were corrupt. Uh, these were, I mean, basically in both situations, the United States and its allies in both Iraq and Afghanistan built countries where the rule of law was basically the rule of the rule by, you know, guys with the guns. Uh, I mean, that that's how it worked. And so these men, uh, almost all men, certainly in Afghanistan, it was all men and in Afghanistan, 97% men um, took the money. Uh, you know, they took their cut. And so by the time, again, you get down to like the level where you're going to build this school, uh, there's only about 10 cents of every dollar left. Um, so the corruption was massive. It was one big grift. It was one big racket. Um, there was very little control. And, you know, and part of it was that within both uh, the U.S. and the U.K., because uh, from what I saw, the U.K. was just as bad as the U.S. was. Uh, with, so the British was just as bad as, as my, my Irish friends get upset if I say UK. So I'll try not to say that. But um, my, my, you know, the, the Brits were, were just as bad as, 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 us, as us Americans were uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, this idea that spending money was somehow showing progress. The more money you spent was while well, you were making progress, uh, you know, that it was a metric to demonstrate that you were doing something. Um, so that if, you know, Kareem, if you were, uh, my predecessor there, and you spent $10 million. My goal was to spend $15 million to show that I was better than you. I mean, so there's a lot of just organizational or institutional, um, you know, uh, 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 madness that was, was present, you know, just how do you prove you're better institutionally or individually? But then too, it just also uh, fed, uh, the corruption just fed uh, the insecurity, it fed the instability. Um, and, you know, you're rewarding, basically, the very worst of the population. I mean, you had in both cases, you know, but especially in Afghanistan, there was a government of warlords. Um, and, you know, so these men were getting rich, uh, you know, and, and rich, you know, th these were, you know, well-documented uh, members of the government, you know, uh, uh, shipping out tens of millions of dollars every day uh, out of the country. Uh, so the corruption was was massive on both sides. It was one great looting, um, uh, uh, and uh, plenty of people made a lot of money, and very very little was actually accomplished uh, for either the Iraqi people or the Afghan people.
It's interesting because this is a case where the micro is interacting with the mm -hmm. macro. You know, the coalition provisional authority that ruled Iraq for the first year of the US invasion, it passed 100 legally binding administrative orders. Order 30 was the deregulation of wage protection and the labor market. Um, in terms of the banking sector, you had many of the orders referring directly to it. You also had Order 39, 46 and 51, the privatization of state enterprise. And so by the end, what you had were 200 state-owned enterprises dismantled um, from electricity, telecommunications, uh, pharmaceutical industry taken over by foreign control, and also 100% foreign, foreign ownership of banks, mines and factories. What you also had was the reducing of corporation tax from 45% to 15%. Um, and during the first year of the occupation, you had about $50 billion of reconstruction contracts going to US corporations like Bechtel, Skylink USA, Halliburton, Bearing Point. And during that very same period, it was estimated that only 2% of the contracts went to Iraqi firms. Mm -hmm. Of course, Article 55 of the Hague Regulations shows that it is not legal to privatize a country's assets while it is under the occupation of a foreign military power. You also look at Kellogg, Brown and Root getting a $7 billion contract a week before the invasion started. It was at that time the largest no-bid contract in the history of the United States. When you look at it overall, Iraq Revenue Watch of 2004 found that 150 US firms had uh, collectively landed reconstruction contracts in Iraq and Afghanistan worth $48.7 billion. Um, and they found that uh, US and UK companies received 85% of the value of contracts worth over $5 million tendered by the CPA. And 73% of all the contracts that were worth more than $5 million were not tendered competitively, meaning they were no-bid contracts. Um, that's you know, really massive. Another part of the Iraqi occupation, which was this sort of transfer, transfer of funds towards mainly US corporations, was the reparations part of it. Companies were able to claim for lost income from the period of time that the country was ruled by the Ba'ath Party. So you had Sheraton, for example, claiming $11 million supposedly for lost income prior to the invasion. Bechtel claimed for $7 million. Pepsi got $3.8 million of reparations. ExxonMobil got $2.3 million. KFC got over 300,000. Toys R Us got about 200,000. And Israeli farmers received $8 million in reparations for lost income because they supposedly were not able to harvest and export to Iraq during that time. And Israeli travel agents and hotels received $15 million of reparations for that period. Essentially, what we're looking at is a country which was deindustrialized. And because of the implementation of Order 12 in those 100 orders, it just became a, a, a state to which people would dump 
their goods. And it put about 25,000 uh, people out of work. At the time of the uh, invasion, you had about half a million people abruptly with no job. And later on, that extended to 50, 50% of the entire workforce being unemployed. They stopped applying pesticides uh, to the trees. So the date industry, which was formerly massive in Iraq, completely stopped for many, many years. The leather industry also immediately um, went from employing about 200,000 people to employing only 20,000 people. And so then this leads us to the point where the first IMF loan in 2005 was, of course, a necessity, despite the fact that all of this money was circling around Iraq, but it was being siphoned off in different directions, as you laid out before. But also one of the key things that the Bush administration did was they gave legal immunity to US personnel for any activity which was related to the economic reconstruction of Iraq. Also, uh, Bush passed the executive order 13303, which gave immunity from prosecution uh, for theft or embezzlement of Iraqi oil or any corporate crimes relating to oil. KPMG, when they were looking at the uh, accounts of the CPA, they found 37 different contracts, which were um, the value of $185 million put together, where none of the contracting files could be found. Mm -hmm. And you even found the advance of $3 million paid to a CPA senior advisor, which was unauthorized. So we are talking about really industrial levels of extreme corruption. You know, the development fund for Iraq was found to have $8.8 billion to $12 billion completely unaccounted for. And so um, the CPA not only didn't account properly, it didn't even keep a list of the companies that it had issued contracts to. And of course, that can't be seen as incompetence when you understand how much money is at stake here and what kind of um, agencies of government were involved. You know, this is what some call um, the rule of nobody. It is an unregulated space for commercial activity, you know, lacking a coherent social contract. And this is, you know, as you as you sort of alluded to, this irresolvable contradiction. You have a rule of law by the gun for the population, but no law whatsoever for corporate power. As far as I understand, when you were there, or maybe just after you were there, it was the period in which you had the IMF and the US government trying to push the Iraqi government to pass the oil law, which would allow production sharing agreements. And what that would mean is essentially privatization of most of the oil fields. It would allow for 25 years to 40 years and sometimes indefinite ownership of oil fields by foreign companies. What essentially happened, though, was the pushback against this by civil society and particularly trade unions in the oil sector really blocked the Iraqi government from being able to do that. And again, it was used, George Bush used the promise of the surge to Nouri al-Maliki to sort of shore up his government, of course, well known for its corruption, as 
um, a kind of bribe in order to, to try and pass this law. But of course, it did not happen, largely thanks to Iraqi civil society. And as we know, that's just dealing with the corporate side of the deregulated um, activity. When it comes to the war side, you know, Noam Chomsky um, has made the argument that the toxic legacy and cancer rates in Fallujah are worse than they were in Hiroshima. You know, Mm -hmm. Hiroshima showed a 17 um, times increase in leukemia, but in Fallujah, some studies have found a 38-fold increase in leukemia and a 10-fold increase in breast cancer. There's also been an 18% drop in births of uh, male births in Fallujah, which is similar to the drop in male births in Hiroshima. So, you know, we are dealing with a real juggernaut of deregulation. It's like these neocon wars making neoliberal utopias in which all of these things can happen. And when it comes to Afghanistan, and this is another thing that you have mentioned previously, something that happened was Afghanistan went the year before the occupation, you know, it was an attempt by the Taliban to stop the trade in opium and to stop the production of it. It got very low that year, the lowest it had been at least since before the support of foreign and local fighters against the Soviet Union by the US in the 70s. It really dropped very low at that point. However, today we're in a situation where over 90% of the world's heroin originates in Afghanistan. Uh, Helmand is the center of production. The British Army had 10,000 soldiers there with 104 bases there. You've said that one of the reasons you resigned was that the US was, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, was effectively taking part in the established drug trade by uh, backing drug lords like the brother of the, the president, Karzai, um, you know, all of these things pushed to turn what someone who's really an expert in a lot of this stuff, Alfred McCoy, termed as Afghanistan being the world's first narco state. So if you could tell me a little bit about that process, but also about a character by the name of Gul Agheshazai. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, wow, fantastic uh... Uh, summary, um, you know, and this goes back to what you brought up in your introduction when you were talking about the goes back to the opium wars. I mean, this is the the, the poppy fields that produce all that uh, all those opiates um, are a uh, consequence of the opium wars. Um, the reason that you have these opium these poppy crops in India and Pakistan was because of that and the, the desire for the British to uh, feed the Chinese it, right? To sell the Chinese it. But what happens is in the 1980s, um, the CIA and the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, bring that crop into Afghanistan uh, in order to help fund the war against the Soviet Union. Um, Prior to that, Afghanistan did produce, uh, uh, had poppy fields, did produce, produce opiates, but not at a level that they were exporting and making, you know, a ton of money off of in the 1980s that changes uh you know and and this is this is common with you know the americans pick up from where the british leave off um you know the american involvement um in uh, uh you know with the drug traders there's been a complicity there uh in the last century maybe longer uh certainly after world war ii there was complicity with the drug trade off to the mediterranean in both 
uh, Italy and in France. The United States actually brings uh, its, its, its imprisoned mafia leaders from the United States to Italy to run parts of Italy after the U.S. has, uh, you know, occupied uh, starting in 1943, 44, 45, because uh, the United States wants control and these men will guarantee control. The same with like in the ports of France, you know, we've got a, the United States feels that it needs to, and it does align with the narcotics rings uh, in order to uh, prevent a quote takeover by the communists. I mean, so there's complicity, of course, all throughout Vietnam. We know through the great the work of, of the uh, journalist Gary Webb about how the United States uh, CIA with uh, was 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 involved in the drug trade, the cocaine trade uh, into the United States in the 1980s by the Contras in Nicaragua. Uh, this uh, happened to help spark the crack epidemic. Uh, you know, I mean, so this idea that somehow, and this is one of the examples I use when people ask, well, hey, how uh, how do these wars actually affect us here at home? Well, I mean, it's no coincidence that, as you described, Kareem, the, the, the opiate uh, trade out of Afghanistan goes from pretty negligible to 80 to 90 percent of the world's uh, uh, supply just happens to coincide with a worldwide opioid epidemic. Uh, you know, we have tens and tens of thousands of people here dying in the United States every year. I mean, I know it's it's the same in other parts of the world. Uh, so, I mean, th th that we're supposed to just believe that's coincidence. Um, you know, the American DEA lies about it. You can look at the American DEA when they testify to the U.S. Congress, the American DEA Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, they claim that, you know, the United States does not get any heroin from Afghanistan. But if you look at their own facts and, and numbers and their own graphs, and it's, it, it'd be impossible for the United States not to get uh, <laughs> right any opiates from Afghanistan just because of the sheer volume, the sheer, the sheer amount that the U.S. consumes. Um, but no, I mean, the, 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 so the drug trade, um, the complicity of the Americans with the drug trade, uh, you know, whether it was a fact that a, a man named Marshall Fahim, who became the Afghan minister of defense, who was the largest drug trafficker in Northern Afghanistan, uh, you know, we were providing him as minister of defense with helicopters and planes. What do you think he was doing with that? Uh, I mean, and, you know, a, a guy like Golar Gershurzai, who, had been the warlord in control of Kandahar in the south. Kandahar is basically the, 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 the origin, the birthplace of the Taliban. The Taliban, if you know their, their origin story, which has a pretty good degree of truth to it, um, they rise up to overthrow these warlords who are preying upon the people. Uh, and that's the, the birth story of the Taliban. Who is the senior warlord down there? It's Golar Gashurzai. Well, when the United States goes into Afghanistan, excuse me, 01, who do they put in power in Kandahar? Shurzai, the guy the Taliban took out of power, right? I mean, for because he was such a, a predatory warlord. Uh, he has a number of positions in Afghanistan. Um, I knew him in, in Nangahar province in the east, uh, borders on Pakistan, has the most important border crossing. Afghanistan's a landlocked country, of course, right? So border crossings are pretty important. As uh, Governor Mangahar, he controls that border crossing, so he is just getting even richer than he was. But with regards to the drugs, and, and, and this is a this is a, a pure uh, gangster, pure warlord, uh, you know. I mean, and all the other things, not just the war crimes, but well understood, well known, well documented that he trafficked uh, in in boys. I mean, the the story of the the, the story of 
the Afghan commanders, the warlords uh, preying on Afghan boys is absolutely true. Uh, you know, it was part of that culture within the warlord caste that you took your pleasure with boys. It, it, that's what happened. And uh, Americans just, we ignored it. Uh, and with the drug trade, uh, there was a program that was called uh, the, uh, the Governor's Eradication Fund or something like that. And um, basically the idea was, is that if a governor of an Afghan province did a good job eradicating the uh, uh, poppy crops in his province, then they would be rewarded uh, with, with cash, in this case, $10 million. So Golarga Shurzai's family still has vast poppy crops down the south. He's up in Nangahar, up in the northeast. Uh, what does he do? He turns to all the, uh, and, and, and Nangahar was a big poppy, poppy growing area. Shurzai turns to his competition, basically, in Nangahar and says, either you cut me in, you know, you kick back to me, you work, basically you work for me, or I'm going to eradicate your fields. And so those, some of them are smart and they go along with Shurzai. Some of them think they can stand up to him. What does Shurzai have behind him? He's got not just the Afghan government, but he's got the entire, uh, you know, Western military presence and a lot of money. So he, you know, supposedly eradicates these poppy crops. What he's basically doing is, is, is rubbing out his competition. And because he does such a good job with this uh, eradication plan, the United States gives him $10 million in cash. I mean, so basically give him $10 million in cash for rubbing out his competition. I mean, that is just one example uh, of, you know, dozens I could talk about. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I could talk about uh, uh, Sher Muhammad Akhanzada, uh, Akhman Wali Karzai, uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, uh, Muhammad Adenor. I mean, like, you know, names that are recognizable, but then also, too, I could talk about a lot of names that are, are not recognizable. This was... This was the system. It was the entire governing structure was composed of these warlords and drug lords. Because going back to the 80s, who were the who were the people who were controlling these poppy fields? They were the warlords of the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen were controlling these poppy fields. When you know, so who were who were the people that the U.S. put in power in 2001? They were these warlords. So the the very people who owned the drug trade were the ones that were in power. Uh, and then part of the great myth, the, the one of the great lies of, of the war was that there was this nexus, this this uh, narco terror uh, connection. Uh, you know, the Taliban controlled the drug trade. The Taliban taxed the drug trade, but actually, it's been found recently that even in, among its taxes, the drug trade was uh, was not one of the most heavily taxed things for the Taliban. But more importantly, the Taliban did get money from the drug trade. Uh, they didn't control it. Um, but uh, the, where they got their most money from was from off of siphoning off of U.S. contracts over there, uh, or Western contracts in Afghanistan, these reconstruction contracts. Or, you know, I mean, people are probably familiar with the stories about U.S. and Western forces basically paying tolls, uh, right, to pay taxes to the Taliban so they could drive through their territory with our supply convoys and everything. Um, you know, but also the Taliban got plenty of money from the Pakistanis. And the most prominent source of funding for the Taliban, though, was the Gulf monarchies, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, the, the, the you know, Bahrainis, Kuwaitis, et cetera. That was the primary funding mechanism of the Taliban for, for years. 
uh, not the drug trade. But that was the, the one of the great lies. So, you know, and, and a two-headed lie, right? One part is the lie that Taliban control the drug trade. And the other part is the lie that somehow the Afghan government is against the drug trade. When the reality, the Afghan government was the drug trade. They're the ones who controlled it. And so the complicity there uh, with the United States and the West said, you know, basically making this ends, the, the ends justify the means type of arguments that, well, okay, you know, what the argument would typically shake out as, well, we know they're bad people doing bad things, but once we get this war situated, once we get uh, things in proper order, then we can, then, then that will all work itself out. But in the meantime, we have to work with the partners we have because the end purpose is much greater than what is occurring in terms of the daily crimes of the Afghan government. Um, it was all just one big, uh, one big charade, one big uh, facade, one big lie. It's interesting because what you're kind of um, implying is a marriage between a sort of borderless capital represented by the US government and local warlords, um, drug dealers, and in some cases, uh, prostitution, you know, pimping, you know, and you had Dyncorp International, the mercenary group owned by Veritas Capital. Of course, Veritas Capital on their advisory board, you had the former Deputy Secretary of State in the Bush government, Richard Armitage. Dyncorp were found not only in Bosnia to be selling sex slaves to each other, among each other. But then in Afghanistan, you had the example of them being found using child prostitutes. You also have the example of Armour Group. This was the mercenary or the military contractor who were tasked with guarding the US embassy. Armour Group is now owned by G4S. It wasn't at the time. But again, they were found to be frequenting um, brothels in Kabul. And in the end, when the case came up and the US government found them to be violating the Traffic Persons Act, in the end, this organization, um, Armour Group, and by the way, it was done with the knowledge of the management of the organization. This is what the US government found. All they had to do was pay $7.5 million to the US government in a fine. So it's this kind of circular circular um, operation of this kind of stuff. Um, the question I also wanted to ask you leading on from that, actually, is you've been quoted as saying that reconstruction in these thought theaters of war have been successful only for Northern Virginia. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and actually, I think um, I was saying things along the line. I think it was the journalist Ryan Grimm said that about Northern Virginia. I don't want to, that's a great line. I right. don't want to see, I don't want to steal his, his thunder. No worries. Um, one thing I just want to go back to one, one thing on, on what you brought up though, uh, the importance of sovereignty. This is why the United States, uh, the Britain, others have always insisted the Afghans are sovereign, the, the uh, Iraqis are sovereign, right? That's complete uh, BS. But um, because if those are sovereign countries, then British courts, US courts have no jurisdiction there. And we have seen that continually where uh, there's an American company called CACI, uh, C-A-C-I, that whose, whose employees tortured Iraqis. They tortured them. And um, the Iraqis tried to take, uh, you know, CACI to court uh, because they tortured people. And um, U.S. courts throw it out because there's no jurisdiction there for U.S. courts. 
So that that you know, there's all kinds of legal mechanisms, and this is this is this is this is the the um, you know the, the bureaucracy of empire, the institutionalization of empire. This is how things are controlled. This is how things are done. This is how the looting is accomplished. You mentioned Bosnia, um, and that's really where the formation of um, this looting gets its modern form is in the reconstruction work in the late in the mid late nineties in the Balkans. Um, this is where these these groups like Bechtel, Dyncor, Halliburton, and others, as you mentioned, really start to put um, an understanding and a framework to how this organized looting occurs, and also to begin to really cement that relationship with the U.S., the British governments, you know, uh, whoever. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of history to this, and a lot of thought behind it, a lot of legality behind it, a lot of organization behind it. It's just, uh, it works many ways informally, in other ways, it works uh, uh, quite formally, um, you know, with this idea that uh, reconstruction, because, you know, th that's the, that's the understanding is that the reconstruction effort in Afghanistan was failed. Uh, and, you know, how do you define failed if you define what the purposes are, if the purpose was supposedly to help the Afghan people or the Iraqi people for that matter, or for, for anywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, like 90% of, of, of Afghans live below the poverty line. 70% uh, of Afghans live on less than a dollar a day. Afghanistan is the second most food insecure country in the world. There is no industry other there than, than the narcotics industry, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all information prior to the Taliban taking over. And since the Taliban taken over, it's got worse. Um, that's prior to the Taliban taking over after 20 years of Western occupation and supposedly all the progress the West brought to Afghanistan, that's the reality. Um, and it got worse and people shouldn't think that it just stayed bad. Uh, the poverty rate, remember it's 90% now, in 2007, the poverty rate was 35% and now it's 90%. I mean, just to make sure people understand, it got worse. Um, the, the looting that occurred there, and this is what's interesting about how the American empire works and what makes Afghanistan in particular so striking as an example of like a neo-colonial project. Uh, the looting of Afghanistan, to a lesser degree Iraq, really took, came from the American treasury. Um, there was some looting of, of Afghan assets, but really not a heck of a lot. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the Afghanistan does have minerals, there's a possibility of a pipeline. None of that was ever realized in terms of extraction of wealth for what empires are known for. This is why you have empires, right? You go abroad to take from others, to enrich, you know, your, your society, you know, bolster your power, et cetera. Um, so in the case where you see, uh, when you see that, you know, as Ryan said, the one place reconstruction was successful was Northern Virginia and also Maryland. You see that uh, since 2001, um, the wealthiest part of uh, the United States is the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Uh, prior to that, it was Silicon Valley. Before that, it was places like Dallas and Tulsa because of the oil, uh, you know, the coal mining regions, you know, New York at one point. Um, but now, you know, since these wars, uh, it has been and is the wealthiest part of the United States, you know, Washington, D.C. suburbs. Um, you know, you would if if you were from that area and have been struck on the head 20 years ago uh, in a coma and woke up now, the place is unrecognizable. Um, and this is money from the wars. Uh, the United States budget, which is more than a, a, a it's discretionary budget, um, is more than a trillion dollars a year. 
that has grown uh, 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 vastly uh, over the last 20 years, but almost all that growth has been in military spending. If you actually look at anything that's not military in the US federal budget since 2001, it has either remained flat or actually declined uh, in terms of you know, inflation adjusted as well as population adjusted because the United States has grown in population by 50 million people since 2001. And any, anything that's not connected to the military has been diminished. So where did this money come from to allow for Washington, D.C. to become the wealthiest part of the United States? It came from the war spending. So the, the, the wars were very successful for people here in the United States. I mean, uh, plenty of corporations, uh, you know, and so the institutional profit, but then the individual profit as well has been massive. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 the circumstances people find themselves in, in terms of, of the wealth they have gained uh, through these wars, uh, it, you know, it explains why so many people embrace the wars, even though they know they're wrong, even though that they know they're doomed, even though that they are counterproductive. Uh, you know, I mean, it just to, just to make sure people are clear on, on how this, how how open and how over and 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 um, uh, uh, determinative or determined uh, this 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 looting is. I mean, you have seen. Um, the U.S. defense budget half of the half of the money uh, spent on these wars goes to corporations. Uh, so of about the fourteen trillion dollars that have been spent by the U.S. on these wars since two thousand one, half of that has gone to corporations. You know, I mean, so not to, I mean, so it, it, it's it's a very clear uh, um, it's a very clear mechanism to generate profit. But it's all, you know, it's also done on looting, and this is what makes the American empire so uh, obscene. Um, it's a looting of its own treasury in many ways. I mean, certainly things were taken from the Afghan people, but it wasn't the extraction. Like in one way, look at it is Afghanistan um, was 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 unplanned. I mean, it really was as if a, a United States was a, a a a drunk and blind giant stumbling through Afghanistan. Um, whereas the Iraq war was totally planned. And so with the Iraq war, you can see uh, the, the, some of the very um, normative uh, imperial or colonial uh, type uh, efforts, as you described uh, Paul Bremer, who was head of the Coalition for Frozen Authority in Iraq, his 100 orders, many of them very clear. I mean, very the, some of those things about, about uh, uh, the closing the state-owned businesses, ensuring foreign investment, uh, you know, a lot of those orders were meant just to extract wealth from the Iraqis. Uh, in Afghanistan, you don't really see that, and it really is, and that's what makes the, that war, uh, and it make, makes the American empire um, even more absurd than it, than it actually is, even more barbaric. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, it gets to the point of you know, how long could, could something like this be sustained for? I think what's clear from what we've touched on throughout this episode is the transactional transfer aspect of what happens in these adventures. But the question I wanted to ask you, what do you think are some of the interests, you know, if it's something you've looked at on the other side of the fence, what are some of the interests behind this escalation with China? With China, um, 
it is very much uh, some of the same interests or because or, or, you, you can't discount ideology. You can't discount many people want to assign economics and financial and, and financials and, 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 you know, wealth generation and all the things that just discussed as the primary driver of these wars and the primary driver of American foreign policy. And that is to a degree. But like anything else, there's never one singular explanation. And if you look at the people who make these decisions, who drive these wars, who are the policy makers, you know, um, the, and, and the men and women who keep showing up in both Democratic and Republican administrations, uh, you see that their primary motivation is not to get wealthy. I mean, they are wealthy because that's going to happen as a, as because of their positions and because of their relationships. Uh, but that's not their primary concern. Their primary concern is the, uh, you know, the maintenance of the American empire and its expansion. And you brought up uh, Sam Huntington in the very beginning, uh, his book, Class of Civilizations, uh, which had, which reflected greatly the thinking in the American foreign policy uh, community in the 1990s, but also too over these last 20 years. Um, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History is another one. And I think Fukuyama's book uh, really demonstrates uh, the thinking that was behind uh, the neoconservatives of the Bush administration, uh, the Cheneys, the Wolfowitzes, uh, the Bremers, uh, the Kalazads, uh, the people who certainly wanted to generate wealth. Again, don't say, don't, don't, don't say, well, I'm not saying that. But their main concern was expanding the empire for the sake of the empire. Uh, they're also heavily, uh, uh, they're also heavily tarnished with the, the uh, American exceptionalism and chauvinism. Uh, this idea that we have a uh, because we are the pinnacle, we have a, 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 a an obligation, no blessed bleach to do. And they honestly believe this um, at the same time, too. It's a chauvinism that is pervaded with violence where something like Afghanistan, ha something like 9-11 happens and there has to be punishment for this humiliation. You can't allow anyone to step out of line. I mean, this that that is basically understanding how the American foreign policy community views the world, views the United States' role, views the United States' responsibility as they see it. I mean, these are people, when you hear the Americans, America, where you hear commentators talk about the loss of credibility, they're talking about, they're really projecting their own internal um, uh, 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 fears, their own internal uh, frustrations, their, their, their concerns that somehow the United States is not going to be the uh, uh, pinnacle of civilization anymore, not going to be the strongest power the world's ever known, not going to, you know, have that uh, a, a premature, have that, you know, uh, uh, be in that position. Um, and, and, you know, the Obama administration, the people in that administration, the, 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 the powers, the rices, et cetera, um, you know, uh, similar but different, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they, they're not neoconservatives, they're uh, liberal uh, interventionists. Um, you know, and then, then the Trump people, the Mattises, the Kellys, uh, the McMasters, uh, they're more in a Sam Huntington's category of like they view the world as uh, uh, as, as the, the Middle East in particular, the Muslim world, especially, I should say, uh, as a borderland that, you know, the frontiers, these are where the barbarians are and we must protect civilization from them. You know, I mean, so that kind of gives you a gist of, of, of the thinking, the different factions within the American foreign policy community, um, at least the, the foreign policy community that dominates the Democratic and Republican parties. Um, you know, with regards to China, if you understand that, then you see the Chinese encroachment on that empire as a threat, as a, you know, and in particular, 
uh, an existential threat because of the growth of Chinese economy, the idea that the Chinese are going to overtake uh, the American economy, that they, the Americans will no longer have the, um, you know, the, 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 the imprint of being the world's strongest power. Uh, the United States won the Cold War, uh, according to them. The United States is the end of history. Uh, the United States views uh, Europe as, it, as a shark views the little fish that swim around its mouth and feed off of the, the crumbs, right? I mean, that's the, that's the junior imperial partners of Europe, basically, is how it's viewed. Uh, so th that if the United States loses that point, again, it, these are people who are dominated by their own personal involvement with history. So to them, the fear that somehow the U.S. is going to be overtaken while they are in charge is a uh, is not just a, is, a, is a personal existential uh, threat. You know, and, and it's so amazing too, Kareem, because you and I briefly spoke about this earlier, the fact that this Chinese threat if you will, uh, this economic threat, because the Chinese military certainly, uh, for all the hype and hoopla and everything, uh, is nothing I, I think that really should be uh, too concerned about. The Chinese don't have an expansionist military interest. Uh, they have not had one. Um, they, they have enough problems within their own country. I don't think anyone in Chinese leadership wants to go abroad. However, the West has pushed that. You know, I mean, you, you go back to when Bill Clinton sends the aircraft carriers into the, 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 the South China Sea uh, in the mid 90s, you know, drives those aircraft carriers right up to China's coast, basically, and threatens the Chinese. You know, the response from the Chinese was, please don't, you know, paraphrase them. Please don't do this. If you keep doing this, we will have to respond. I mean, it's very similar to what uh, Vladimir Putin has said. I'm not a fan of Putin at all. I mean, don't, you know, I mean, um, but like, you know, uh, what he said 20 some odd years ago, particularly when the United States pulls out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. If you do this, if you threaten us, we will have to respond. I mean, both the Chinese and the Russians over the last 25 years or so have begged the Americans not to do this, not to push your aircraft carriers up to our coast, not to push NATO to our borders. If you threaten us, we will have to respond. And what do you, and the other part, the economic part with China is, is equally everything seems so upside down, right? Because who is the one who built those factories? It, it was the West that shipped its manufacturing to China in the, in the, in the, um, in the desire for short-term profits. It was the West banks that financed that Chinese economic expansion. I mean, I mean, this is all what the United States uh, and the West have created this this Chinese uh, economic uh, 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 behemoth. Uh, I mean, I'm not want to take any any agency from the Chinese, of course, but the American and Western involvement in the creation of the Chinese economy is undeniable, uh, and it was done in order to get short term profits or or maybe mid term profits for Western companies. And one of the things that you've seen because, and, and the economist Grace Blakely explains this very well, uh, you know, is that as the Chinese economy has grown, as these Chinese corporations have grown and have taken on a global presence, well, now it gets back to extraction. I mean, for centuries, the West has, the, you know, the Europeans first and now the Americans, their empires have extracted from the poorer nations, from the, the global south, 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 excuse me, the developing world, the poor nations, whatever you want to call them. The West every year 
extracts trillions of dollars from those countries. Uh, the imbalance is obscene. Um, and China now threatens that because China now is having a global presence. Its corporations have a, is starting to have a presence and that rattles the American empire. Because again, the goal of extraction, the goal of empire is extraction. Um, you know, and now you have created this, helped create this Chinese economic behemoth that is competing for that extraction, right? You see the Chinese presence in Africa, the Chinese presence in South America. Uh, the Chinese are, uh, you know, you hear this among American commentators. I'm sure it's the same in, in, in Britain, in other parts of Europe. Well, the Chinese are going to be there. The Chinese are going to be there. If you hear about the U.S. Uh, Africa command, uh, you know, the U.S. military presence in Africa, so often the argument is, well, we have to be there because the Chinese are going to be there. Uh, you hear this, the great fear about South America, the Chinese are there. Yeah, so. Oh, you're on mute. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, in Africa, you are talking about 35 to 39 U.S. bases through AFRICOM in contrast to one Chinese base in Djibouti. So yeah. I think it's which, really is a, which is an anti-piracy base, too. It's like a, it's a joint international presence to combat piracy. So it's not even like the Chinese built their own base. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and so what we're seeing is Africa become the theater of really the U.S. essentially trying to impose um, a relationship with it as opposed to a relationship with China. So there's interesting little dynamics that are developing across the board. But I just, I just wanted to say, Matthew, thank you so, so much for joining us. I think you've really helped to um, show the trajectory, this sort of Plato to NATO conception of history, mm -hmm. a sort of tele teleological idea of the way history should have run, you know, from the Fukuyama um, kind of idea. And now we're talking about what is this next stage of decline, essentially, for the US empire and the way that that new chapter to history that is being built, as far as they would see it with, with China now, is it's certainly going to cause major existential crises, not just in uh, the outskirts of Washington, but I'm sure in other places too and those that decide to pin themselves to this sort of uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, supremacy, really, mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Thank you so much for joining us. We could talk all day. Um, it would be amazing to get you back for a part two. If you can just let viewers know where they can keep up with your work. And, um, yeah. Yeah, no, um, I'm a... Again, as, as Kareem has stated, with the Center for International Policy, I'm on Twitter, Matthew uh, P, P as in Patrick Ho, H-O-H. -H. Uh, and when I, if I write something, it's usually on, on Counterpunch uh, or on Antiwar.com as well. But uh, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate uh, you for having me on with you. Uh, yeah, thanks for the work you're doing and thanks for the work that Impress is doing. Thank you very much. Stay well, stay safe, speak soon.